Welcome to our podcast on palliative embolotherapy. Uh, my name is Sean Tutton. I am a professor of radiology at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and today I'm joined uh, by Dr. Karen Brown, who's the chief of IR at the University of Utah. Karen, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. So what I think people would enjoy is sort of hearing, you know, what's your path been, and is there a part of these palliative procedures that you really kind of enjoy and focus on, or particular patients in your role at uh, Sloan Kettering, kind of what you were doing and how embolization fit into that in the non-curative patient, and then now mm-hmm. maybe what you're doing at Utah, right? You're at Utah? Mm-hmm. Yep. And and what are the challenges that you've met to kind of rebuild those things and to promote awareness and and to connect with the referring docs that you're starting to make you know, those relationships with. I started practice in 1985 at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital in New York City. And I was there until 1992 when I went to Memorial Sloan Kettering, which was really, I think, practically the takeoff, you know, the beginning, the launching of interventional oncology. You know, I mean, people were doing things up until then, but it wasn't clinical-based. You know, it was more a someone-would-order-something type of situation. And, uh, you know, it was when a period of great growth began in our specialty. And it was very cool to be there on the in the beginning and see how it evolved. So I've asked Dr. Brown to speak with us today about palliative embolization. Obviously, this is a, a broad topic. You know, we in interventional oncology uh, perform embolization therapy for liver tumors, hepatocellular carcinoma, cholangiocarcinoma, neuroendocrine tumors. Uh, we can do it with the goals of controlling disease, bridging to transplant, or to relieve pain from capsular distension. But we also embolize kidney tumors for pain, hematuria, and uh, for bleeding. We embolize soft tissue and bone tumors and head and neck tumors. So there's a whole host of patients and situations where we embolize, but Dr. Brown has uh, unique experience in liver-directed therapy, so I'm hoping she's going to share some of her past experience and stories with us. You know, I mean, one of the things I would say that I think there's a general lack of awareness, although it's also not common, and that is the patient with neuroendocrine tumor who presents encephalopathic related to tumor bulk and vascular shunting causing portal hypertension. And I think that's, you know, generally unrecognized, but there is an area where you can make a huge impact because, you know, the, the, one might look at the patient's CT and look at the patient and say, well, they're dying. And in reality, depending on the overall clinical picture, that might not be the case. Absolutely. But, you know, that's kind of an esoteric... Uh, well, but often it's... Those specific examples that we say, okay, that's esoteric, it's only a handful of patients, but you have a success in that patient, mm-hmm. and then that medical oncologist or surgical oncologist or team says, wow, that was really amazing, mm-hmm. you know, that yep. you really pulled that patient from the depths, yep. and that sort of spurs on more confidence and, yep. and interest in having you do something for another type of patient, right, a palliative oh, embolization. Oh, okay. For yeah. a kidney tumor, right? That's mm-hmm. painful, and and there's hematuria, and and they hadn't thought about that before, and they're thinking about radiating it or or something like that. Mm-hmm. No question, no question about that. You have to have a 
few successes under your belt to build your credibility and people's confidence in you. I mean, that's critical. So if I were to ask you about a patient or two um, that just was an amazing experience, either a bad experience or a really good experience, either it was a bad experience because you got really close to that patient and you were offering some palliative embolization therapy for that person and it didn't go that well, or as you just described, a patient who you really turned things around. Do you think that you would be able to kind of describe that? Sure. Well, I mean, I can, I can think of two off the top of my head. And, and, and again, this is more often found, I think, in neuroendocrine patients where it truly is palliative. And uh, I mean, typically they have metastatic disease to the liver. It's not like you're going to cure them of every lesion. And the whole idea, as I see it, is to control the disease burden in the liver so that they don't have regression and, and resulting in liver failure and death from that. And there was a woman at Sloan Kettering that I embolized for, I think, nine years, nine or ten years with neuroendocrine tumor. When she came to me, she had incidentally discovered neuroendocrine tumor, big tumor volume in the liver, non-functional neuroendocrine tumor. She was having a transvaginal ultrasound for, I don't know, something. And her liver was so big that they saw the liver on her pelvic ultrasound. It was way down in her pelvis, and they could tell she had liver lesions. So oh that was gosh. how the initial, yeah, that's how it started. When she came to see me, she had very little in the way of symptoms, except for the fact that she found that she had increased in girth, so she was wearing her husband's pants. <laughs> that, was, oh my gosh. that was her chief complaint. That was the right? tip-off, the chief complaint. And, yes, and... Uh, I embolized her. It was such a big tumor volume. I took it in, you know, I think I did the lateral segment and then I did uh, anterior or posterior division. I, I staged it. Her, her first embolization was either the anterior or posterior sector on the right side. And she had a pretty tough time with the embolization. You know, bland embolization can have a lot of post-embolization syndrome, especially more so back in the days when I did her. Mm-hmm. More recently, when I embolize these people, I give them steroids, uh, 8 of decadron and 30 of ketorolac intraoperatively, intraembolization, and um, keeps them on Marinol, which I also give them PO prior to the procedure. I keep them on Marinol and ketorolac for the 24 hours after, and that really seems to mitigate the post-embo syndrome. But in someone like her with such big tumor volume, I suspect she would have, you know, had a tough time anyway. But she ended up, interestingly, actually ended up in the ICU the first time I did her and what she ended up there. And this is, this is another very interesting thing that one should be familiar about when treating patients with neuroendocrine tumor is that even if they have non-functional neuroendocrine tumor, when you suddenly kill a lot of tumor in the liver quickly, so probably this doesn't apply to Y90, but any uh, method that primarily results in ischemia, you know, that you have cell death and then cell lysis. So even if the tumor is making very low levels of something, the patients can become symptomatic from that postoperatively. So anyway, it turned out she ended up in the ICU because she got confused and her sodium fell from like 143 when she came in to like 126 or 5. And uh, we subsequently demonstrated that when we embolized her, her serum levels of antidiuretic hormone went up. So presumably the tumor was producing low levels that left her with a normal sodium at rest, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But when you suddenly kill a lot of her tumor, she became symptomatic from that. And that was something that we had to then 
be ready to treat and her subsequent embolizations. But anyway, so the point is, I think I embolized her 13 times maybe, over 9 or 10 years. Once I embolized the entire liver once, she didn't have another embolization for about 18 months. And then she tended to have one every year, year or so. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, of course, um, she ultimately developed lung metastases. Yeah. And of course, you know, I, I don't have any treatment for those. And they progressed and that was the ultimate cause of death. But I mean, but you I, offered I, her years and years of exactly. symptom management. And, and yeah. frankly, many oncology patients could never hope to have sort of that level of control for that many years. I mean, so Exactly. And I think one of the problems, though, a lot of times with the neuroendocrine patients or even the HCC patients is that we control their disease so well for such a period of time that they come to believe that embolization is the magic panacea when, indeed, we all know that at some point there's either going to be a change in biology of disease or, or extrahepatic spread. And when that day comes, it's, it's tough. It's tough for everybody. Yeah. Can I tell you about another patient? Please do. Please All right, do. so I had another young man that came to see me. He was 42, I think, when he came. He had been operated on at an outside hospital for uh, solid and cystic pseudopapillary tumor of the pancreas, which, you know, not very common in young men, and thought to be a benign tumor. On his first postoperative follow-up scan, he had liver lesions. And low volume, but definitely liver lesions. The former uh, surgical oncology fellows had operated on him, uh, former fellows from Memorial, and sent him to me to see if he could be treated with transarterial therapy. The tumor looked non-vascular on the CT. I said, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's no literature on treating this tumor because it just doesn't exist. I mean, it, it yeah. is most commonly benign. I did an angio on him, and literally knowing where all the lesions were, I couldn't see any of them. But since there was no other option, I treated part of his liver. You know, again, I think I did the anterior posterior sector, whichever one had the most lesions in it, with uh, bland embolization, which is pretty much all we used at Memorial because we did believe that the primary effect of transcatheter therapy is ischemia. Mm -hmm. And this is, again, way before Y90. This was probably, I don't know, I'd say at least 15 years ago. I got a follow-up CT on him. Now, normally, if I'm treating neuroendocrine or something, I wouldn't. if I needed to do the other side or a different sector or whatever, I would just bring him back and do it. But I had no idea if this was going to work. I brought him back, and not only did it work, you couldn't see any of the lesions in the sector that I treated. So I went on to embolize him for longer than the first woman, I think 11 or 12 years. And again, eventually what happened was he recurred in his lymph nodes. And he ended up with massive celiac and periportal adenopathy. I mean, we're talking about seven, eight, nine, ten centimeter lymph nodes. So, you know, between the tumor cachexia and the fact that he was difficult to eat with these big nodes compressing everything, ultimately, you know, he succumbed to his disease. But this, to me, is an example of when you're presented with something that no one knows anything about. You know, maybe you'll find a case report, maybe nothing that it's not unreasonable to try a test of whatever treatment it is that you have because that's how we learn about these things. 
you know, how we you create say, well, new no, therapies. this isn't described or whatever, then, then you don't have the opportunity to learn. But this was amazing. I mean, his liver responded so well. It was really not difficult to control the disease in his liver. And he had, he had three kids when he came to me that were like, you know, nine, six, and three. And, uh, you know, he lived to see his oldest son get into college. And uh, he wants to go into medicine. He got some time with his kids. And yeah. he and his family, I mean, I became very close to all of them. I met all of them. And even when he was having only trouble with his nodes, he'd make a clinic appointment when he came into the city to see his oncologist, and he'd come and see me just to check in. It's probably the most rewarding part of what we do. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. I, I completely focus on palliative patients, and so curing patients, except for the benign bone tumors, is usually not my my goal. It, mm-hmm. You know, my goals are manage symptoms, maximize quality of life, and you know, when you see the patient in clinic and they know that they have a terminal disease and they know that they're ultimately going to succumb, then their goals change. And so, just having as you just said, having a goal of just being around long enough to see a child get out of, you know, college or, you know, these milestones that that happen through our lives. Often the patients just say, gosh, if I could just do X, and if we can do that, you know, they're so thankful because, you know, they, they have to modify their expectations. They have to modify their goals, just like all of us. But, I mean, that's such a rewarding aspect of what we do. Oh, those are those are two great stories. Um, you want to talk about how you interact with referring providers and how you grew your business at Memorial and, and sort of in this space, or we could talk about the future of embolization in this space and, and where we might take embolization in the future? You know, most of the focus, as you know, at meetings tends to be on progression-free survival and overall survival, and that's not necessarily... Well, first of all, for things like neuroendocrine patients, it's impossible to even figure it out. Given the rarity of the disease and the heterogeneity of the patients we treat, not sure how relevant. I mean, it's relevant, but it's within a context. You know, you read a paper and you think, well, what does that mean? What kind of patients do they see? They're such a heterogeneous group. But I think palliation, you're right. It's not often talked about, at least with embolization, more with um, management of ascites and pleural effusions. That's what people tend to think of. I think in the GU space, it is underutilized. I think there's evidence that we can have an impact on whether it's a bleeding bladder tumor or it's a bleeding uh, renal cell carcinoma. These are things that are not often brought to interventional radiologists. The problem is if you don't have a GU tumor board or you don't have representation at the tumor board, uh, you might not hear about these problems. You, You hear about them more probably when we put in nephrostomy tubes at least in terms of bleeding from tumors in the bladder or tumors invading the bladder. Yeah. And um, this is an area that we could potentially help with. I mean, when people have trouble with hematuria, it can be a problem. I'm sure you've seen patients where they can't even drain the bladder because it's all full of clot and it's Mm -hmm. uncomfortable and it keeps them in the hospital. Anything like that is very difficult when you get to the last weeks of someone's life. And, you know, most of us, I'm I'm sure, think we'd either like to die suddenly or at least peacefully. And it would be good if we could provide the latter for our patients. I think a lot of uh, focus should be on palliation and not necessarily on what's the next procedure we could do on them, but what's the next 
procedure we could do on them that would actually be of benefit to them. Because sometimes I think we end up doing things that may be not so beneficial. Right. Not so much in the embolization area, but in in other areas. Mm -hmm. Well, there are times when palliative embolization or embolization clearly plays a role. You can have a, a definite impact on somebody's symptoms. But then we also get these bizarre requests where somebody is literally dying in front of our eyes and they're so far gone that you know that they're not going to get out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. And I have these conversations with my fellows all the time and trying to educate them about being judicious and cost effective. You know, embolization is expensive. And mm-hmm. sometimes we do these things and I call it, it's expensive hope, right? Because you're mm-hmm. doing these things and you're giving the patient or the patient's family some brief period of hope that, oh, maybe this will be the thing that will help a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's sort of not a good thing to talk about, but it's this expensive form of hope that we offer. And radiation is guilty of that. And chemotherapy is guilty of that. And, and palliative surgery and embolization. And so knowing when to sort of say, no, this is not the right thing to do. We should really just now focus on keeping this person comfortable and, you know, getting the family here. That's a mm-hmm. tough one. And I think in that regard, it's important to remember that we can also hurt people. Make them worse. There was a case of a young man with fibrolamellar HCC, which, you know, often occurs in young people. Young people. And, of course, often they are in desperate straits. And his tumor was growing into his hepatic vein and up into his right atrium. And, of course, you know, the thought was, you know, this is pretty bad, and if we can't do something to stop this, it's going to be bad. And I brought him for embolization. I had embolized him before uh, with not not bad response, but poor control, because I, I found that the fibrolamellar patients often recur fairly quickly. And uh, anyway, he died the day after I embolized him, because often the tumors that invade the systemic veins there'll be some degree of shunting through them, and it's very easy for anything you put into the hepatic artery to end up in the lungs. Yeah. And so here is a situation where, you know, everyone was totally invested. The guy had just gotten married, and, you know, he was young. I mean, he was in his 20s. I wanted to help. And, again, I had gotten to know him as well over the couple of years that I had been treating him. But he is, it's, it's where I wish that I had not been so aggressive. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's very hard to be able to say, I'm not sure that this is going to help you, but not only that, but I'm afraid that I could hurt you. And I think it's something that, you know, this was a long time ago uh, that I took care of him, but it's something that I wish I had learned in my first 10 years in practice instead of in my last 20 years in practice. But I think it does take a while to see that even procedures that typically are very straightforward and no one has a problem with, it's not always like that. And we always envision the procedure going well, but they don't always go as we envision them. And you get that sinking feeling when you're in the midst of that procedure. If the complication is happening acutely and you just have that, oh, no, Mm -hmm. and you you get that immediate clarity, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, and a very sick feeling to say, what the heck did I just do? That's called wisdom. I mean... I mean, all of, all of what I appreciate. I mean, I'm sure you've often said to people, sometimes it's more important to know when to stop 
And it's yes. sort of the same thing. Yep. Because I think we all do feel that part of what we do as an interventional radiologist, especially somebody, you know, as people in academic practices, it is important for us to share our experience because yeah. there are things that you and I learn that other people might not have an opportunity to see in uh, 10 years in the, you know, not as busy practice or not in a cancer center or whatever. So, you know, this is an important part, I think, of our, our mission in general. So I appreciate the fact that you reached out to me, and I'm glad that I was able to be helpful. Yeah, this was super helpful. And I mean, I have stories that are very similar in my own world uh, and in my own experience. And I know that the people that will listen to these podcasts will have They'll be able to identify with these experiences. And if they're just starting out, some of this is cautionary and some of this is also inspirational in how they can, you know, really offer these therapies to patients who they're not curative patients necessarily, but they still need our help. Yeah. Karen, thanks so much for your insightful stories. Uh, very powerful. Um, thank you for joining us for this important educational activity. Well, again, thank you for inviting me. It was my pleasure.